I'm Ross Mackey from UNSW Canberra and welcome to another Navigating Uncertainty series of podcasts produced by the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at UNSW Canberra. In these difficult times, we believe that careful work in the humanities and social sciences can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us to chart ways forward. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Conflict and Society Research Group based at UNSW Canberra. This podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. We acknowledge their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Today, Professor Peter Stanley is discussing the book he's presently writing, John Company's Armies, the Military Forces of British India, 1824 to 1857. And he'll be speaking with one of India's leading military historians, retired squadron leader Rana China of the United Service Institution of India's Centre for Armed Forces Historical Research. This conversation brings together two active researchers in the military history of the British Empire. Squadron leader China has become one of the leading influences in revitalising the military history of India, both before and after independence. Though he served as a helicopter pilot in the Indian Air Force, he has written extensively on the Indian Army in the Great War and with Cliff Parrott has published a monumental two-volume study of the Indian Order of Merit. Squadron leader China joins us today from New Delhi, where the summer is well underway and the temperature is expected to reach 36 degrees. Let me tell you, it's not that warm in Canberra. Professor Peter Stanley is one of Australia's most active military social historians, with some 40 books to his credit. He was formerly Principal Historian at the Australian War Memorial, where he worked from 1980 to 2007, and so has mainly published in Australian military history. Since joining UNSW Camera as a research professor in 2013, however, Peter has returned to the field in which he wrote his 1993 PhD, The Military Social History of British Empire. The first book on the so-called White Mutiny of 1897, when European soldiers of the East India Company's army protested against their transfer to the Queen's army. In 2015, Peter published Die in Battle, Do Not Despair, which was the first book on the Indian part of the Gallipoli campaign in a century. In 2019, he published Terriers in India, another first, on the experience of the 50,000 British territorials who volunteered to serve in India during the Great War. Later this year, his book Hull Hull will be published by Hearst and Company London, and it's about the suppression of the Santal Rebellion in Bengal in 1855, the first military history of that conflict. Peter is now working on John Company's armies, the subject of this conversation with Rana China. Hello, Peter. Uh, It's good to be in touch again. uh, We haven't seen you since uh, 2018. what was that trip? Hello, Rana. It's it's good to be in contact again. I very well remember my 2018 trip to New Delhi, uh, where I participated in the USII conference marking the centenary of the end of the Great War. I enjoyed meeting members of the active military historical community that clusters around the United Service Institute and Institution of India. And of course, I used its superb research library, which, which you work in every day. Yeah, it was great having you uh over then. And 
Uh, we should discuss the state of military history in uh, in India, I think, and uh, the former nations of British India. Yes, indeed. Um, Rana, how would you describe or characterize the interest in military history in the subcontinent? Is it is it strong? My my perception is is that military history oh, in, in India is growing. Uh, well, yes, uh, there has been a change both in the demographics uh, and the approach. Uh, earlier, most of the individuals interested in military history tended to be retired officers, and they looked at the subject in a very traditional manner. Um, there were fewer academics or professional historians interested in it, but now that's changed, and uh, the older generation of officers is dying out, and while the younger ones don't appear to be as invested, I think, but on the other hand, you've... Uh, had a very positive institutional developments. Uh, the USI, where I work, that's created the Center for Armed Forces Historical Research, which is now the Center for Military History and Conflict Studies. And uh, within the official domain, the Navy also has a very professional history division, while the Air Force has a historical cell. And uh, the Army is uh, less of a service and more of a loose confederation of warring tribes. Uh, but even they appear to be warming up to the idea of establishing a historical research cell. So all in all, I think that's, you know, those are all very positive developments. And uh, yet what's uh, even better is the increasing interest in military history among uh, academia and uh, young writers. Um, and I think uh, if I were to name a few, you have uh, Kaushik Roy at Jadavpur University, who's almost as prolific as you are, Peter. And uh, you have Srinath Raghavan, whose book on India and World War II is excellent. And others who have been doing great work are Anirudh Deshpande at Delhi University. You have Radhika Singha at uh, JNU, K.S. Nair. And there's an upcoming crop of young historians working on a variety of military history subjects. Um, Raghu Karnad's book, The Farthest Field, was uh, uh, an outstanding work of forensic nonfiction, as he called it, while... I think Hemant Kotot's book um, uh, serves as a wonderful guide to the battlefields of Imphal and Kohima. And uh, in South Asia, in Pakistan, you have uh, Major General Sayyid Ali Hamid, who's been doing some very good work. And I believe they have also recently established an Army Institute of Military History uh, under the GHQ at Rawalpindi. That's a very promising development, uh, Rana. And I must say, I don't know all of those people that you've named, so I, I should get to know some of them uh, on the paper or in person. Um, but what about outside India? How would you describe the field uh, beyond the subcontinent? Well, I think there is a fair amount of interest in the UK and uh, to a lesser extent in the United States. You know, till recently you had the Indian Military Historical Society, which functioned as a a focused interest group in the UK. And though it's recently shut down, its membership has largely migrated to uh, the military historical society over there. And most of the interest has tended to be towards World War II. And, you know, you have authors like Yasmin Khan, uh, Rob Lyman, Harry Fasett, uh, Guy Bowman, who come out with some very engaging histories. Uh, the centenary of uh, the Great War also served as a as a catalyst for some excellent work on the Indian contribution. And some of the scholars who produce some outstanding studies apart from yourself, Peter, are uh, you know, Tony McLennigan, who wrote on the armies of the princely states, 
your George Morton Jack, Shantanu Das, Alan Harfield, David Omissi, and Gavin Rand, you know, just, just to name a few. Um, across the Atlantic, I think we've had, uh, you know, Chandar Sundaram, Steve Wilkinson, uh, Dan Marston, and of course, uh, Doug Pierce. But I think apart from Doug, most of the wo work is focused on the two world wars, with some looking at, at you know, the Victorian period with a British focus on the 1857 uprising. Uh, but there's not been a lot of interest in the pre-1857 history. Yeah, um, 1857 is a, a real milestone in mil the military history of India, isn't it? And it's the year that symbolically at least everything changed. And it certainly heralded the end of John Company, the East India Company, and both the destruction but also the reconstruction of India's armies. Well, Bengal anyway, but we'll come back to Bombay and Madras. Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. And this is where your proposed book comes in, uh, or actually rather it, it ends. So, you know, can you tell us what you plan to cover in John Company's armies? Yeah, um, of course, the mutiny is not just a, an important historical point. It's also been a, a massive load of scholarship, uh, the subject of consuming interest. So if you look at the bibliography of the mutiny, uh, the published bibliography, it runs to about 900 pages. But there's a lot of British Indian military history which precedes 1857, but which is overshadowed by it. And I realise that there is a need, I, I think, for a book which explains the army that was largely swept away in 1857. Hmm. And, and what gave you this, uh, the idea? Well, uh, it was actually on my last visit to India, uh, early in 2020, uh, when I didn't get to New Delhi, but I was fortunate to be able to tour the country where the Santal Rebellion was fought in Bihar, Jharkhand and West Bengal. And then I went to Kolkata to a conference convened by Professor Kaushik Roy, who is, as, as you say, a, a prominent historian of India's military history. And Kaushik asked me to write an essay for a book he was editing. And I rather naively decided that I'd like to look at the Bengal army as a whole between the great reorganization of 1824 and the mutiny and, and looking at all of its constituent elements, European and Indian troops, company forces that is, and the British royal troops who served with them. But between the restrictions of research imposed by the virus, but more importantly, the huge scope of that subject, I ended up with a 10,000-word essay which just, just dealt with European officers and men, whom I called Birds of Prey and Passage, quoting Edmund Burke. So while I was writing that essay in the middle of last year, I realised that the whole subject of the pre-mutiny history of the Indian Army really justified a book in itself. Indeed, um, I agree with you. And how did you go about finding a publisher? You know, what was your process for that? Well, I think our little field has been very fortunate in that over the past decade or so, the British publisher Hellion and Company has published a series of books on the military history of South Asia, including in association with the United Service Institution of India. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we had, uh, there was Alan uh, Harfield's volume on the Indian Army in the First World War and your outstanding book on the Indian Army in Gallipoli. Uh, and you've published another book in the series too. Yes, I, I was very happy with the style and the standard of Hellion's books. Hellion published My Indians on Gallipoli, as you say, and then Terriers in India. Uh, and Hellion's publisher, Duncan Rogers, approves of footnotes on the page, and he provides lots of maps, and he's happy to publish images. And generally, Hellion produced first-rate books. So I was delighted when he agreed to the idea of John Company's armies. It really helps when your publisher understands the field as well as Duncan does. Uh, yes, um, yeah, I, I do agree with that. I, I do think that, uh, uh, you know, Duncan does 
do an excellent job with uh, a, a very wide uh, range of uh, uh, subjects within military history and particularly South Asian military history. So what do you want John Company's armies to do, uh, Peter? How will it be different from, you know, say what's available on the subject at present? Well, I think, and I think you'd agree, Rana, that one of the problems is, is that there actually isn't a great deal available that certainly that does what I want this book to do. There are some superb academic studies. You mentioned Doug Pierce and his book Between Mars and Mammon, which argues the existence of a British garrison state in early 19th century India, which is a key idea for, for this book. Um, that's a seminal work. And there are a number of very fine regimental histories and even histories of the company's armies. But looking across them, they're overwhelmingly decades old, often published before 1947. Um, for example, Brigadier Basil Hughes's book on the Bengal Horse Artillery was published in 1974. And the single most useful study of the Bengal Native Infantry by Amir Bharat appeared in 1962. Now, there have been some recent work, as you indicated earlier, there has been some recent work by younger, often Indian historians, uh, such as Sabaya Sachi's Das Gupta's In Defense of Honor and Justice, Sepoy Rebellions in the Early 19th Century. But they tend to be unduly, but understandably, attracted to the events of 1857. Hmm. And so then... What is it exactly that you would want this book, you know, John Company's Armies, to, to do? Well, basically, it seemed to me that I, I want to produce what I'm calling an interpretive guidebook to the armies of British India over the last 30 years or so before 1857. I want to describe what they comprised and how they were organised and commanded, what they did in peace and war, as well as giving a picture of where the armies of British India served – uh, how they lived and died, and in short, provide a kind of guide to these extraordinary armies. It's not just a descriptive guide, though, because the book will be all very opinionated, infused both with my interpretations, assessments and judgments, but also full of the primary evidence available. Uh, we might come back to the nature of those armies and the evidence uh, shortly, uh, because both are fascinating and important to the nature of the book. But could you talk about who the book is intended to serve and what do you emphasize its readership to be? Yeah, thanks, Ron. That's a really important question for, for authors. I wish more authors would think of it. Um, I must say that my background as a public historian here has influenced the way I think of, of history. Um, of course, I'm keen to help fellow historians to understand the ins and outs of the armies of British India. It, I think it's quite an obscure subject for people approaching it. I remember when I was a PhD candidate, I struggled to understand the Indian Army's esoteric and obscure terminology. So what were half-pay drummers or what was half-mounting allowances or how did brevet promotion work, for example? So I'm thinking of a book that will help, if you like, our successors in this field, serious historians, many academics, many PhDs, although I think also this field depends upon the very happy collaboration between what we used to call amateurs and professional historians. And many of the names you mentioned earlier came into both of those categories. I don't think it's a very meaningful distinction because uh, amateurs can be as expert, if not more expert, as, uh, as, as academics. I remember at, that con at a conference uh, at the USII, Harry Fetchett uh, gave me some really profound insights into the nature of Indian uh, army experience on Gallipoli. So let's not have any um, uh, deprecating remarks for so-called amateurs. 
Uh, I'm also concerned to help the family historians who are very commonly drawn to British Indian military history because they found a Madras gunner or a Bengal European in their genealogical research. And I think they need a guide to what can be for lay people a very complex and confusing field. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm certain that, you know, this book will indeed be very useful for Indian students and scholars alike. Thank you. Uh, can I ask you, Rana, do, do you think that one explanation for the general indifference to the pre-1857 military history of India is the absence of accessible guides to the subject? Well, yes. I would say that one of the reasons for the lack of interest in military history in India today is a difficulty in obtaining primary source records. Uh, they're not always available, and when they are, it can be quite difficult to navigate the archives. Um, the guides they are either non-existent or rudimentary at best, which brings us to the content of the book, uh, your book. It's a huge subject, and how, it, how do you plan to organize it? Yes, indeed. Uh, that, that's something that I've, I've pondered uh, for months, because the, the structure of a book like this is a matter deserving much thought. Uh, in fact, as you know, Rana, I've recruited a small advisory committee, you and a, and a couple of valued colleagues, including Doug Pierce from Canada, to advise on aspects of the venture. And, and your comments have been really useful in helping me to focus on what this book should be. But the way I've laid it out so far, and I've got about 45,000 words drafted, that's probably under half of the book, is to look first of all at the overall organisation of the armies in the period. So, first of all, the command arrangements, which of course were complex, the huge bureaucratic structure underpinning the military forces of British India, um, the relatively small number of royal troops sent to India, but the massive companies' forces, mostly Indian troops, and their small European components. And of course, I, th I thought I'd have to look at the arms separately, so cavalry, infantry, and, and the artillery, which were an all-important uh, part of the extension of the company's rule but also irregular forces uh, raised to complement the regular forces. And the other armies of British India, the, the so-called contingent forces uh, and the, the, the forces of the princely states. And I want to look at the composition and character of each of those components of the armies of British India, trying to give a, a concise but accurate picture of each and drawing on primary sources wherever possible. Uh, and... What about the social composition and experience of these forces? Yes, indeed. Uh, as a, a military social historian, that aspect, I think, is vital. It's important to understand the attitudes and the beliefs of these men uh, and women because I treat their families as part of what was a vast military community. Um, for example, European officers of the company were quite different socially from the officers of the royal regiments they served alongside. And the company's men were distinctly were regarded as distinctly inferior in British class terms, something that both were well aware of, not least because the sources are abundant from their letters and memoirs and their endless letters to newspapers um, and their evidence before several official inquiries. So understanding the, uh, the European officers' attitudes and society is quite easy. But understanding the attitudes and values, say, of Bengal sepoys is much harder. Well, yes, I was going to ask, how, do you, how will you penetrate the you know, literally hidden world of the Indian, Indian troops, whether uh, these were Muslim uh, cavalry troopers or Sikh irregular infantry or the Purbia Sipoy? What sources can you draw on over there? Yeah, I think you've put your finger on one of the main difficulties of this project. Um, 
for example, the company's Indian troops, as you know, spoke about a dozen tongues. Today, uh, we we talk, we describe it as as Hindi and Urdu, Tamil and Marathi and Telugu, Telugu and Gokali and Punjabi being the main ones. And I don't speak or read any of those languages. But I don't know if that matters a great deal because the vast majority of troops were illiterate. So there probably isn't a great deal of vernacular evidence to find. That means, though, that I'm obliged to rely mostly on what their British officers and others recorded. And that sounds pretty grim, but having worked in the so-called military consultations, uh, the massive military records in both the National Archives of India and the British Library, I don't think that it's such a handicap. The evidence is there, but it's a matter of, of trying to find that material. Huh. Well, I think you'll need to explain that. I've used the military consultations too, and uh, they are, um, shall we say, a research challenge? Yes, indeed. Um, as you know, the, the company was devoted to record keeping, and it documented and copied just about everything that occurred, and then transmitted the massively detailed consultations to senior officers in India, and then on to East India House in London. So there are copies of these huge ledgers, both in New Delhi and in London, and you would have used them. Um, I've been fortunate to have been able to spend many happy hours working through these consultations, most recently for my book on the Santal Rebellion. And I found that company officers often transcribe the testimonies of sepoys during courts of inquiry, say, and in the many memorials and submissions and appeals that they submitted on their men's behalf. So, in a sense, these colonial records can be used to recover the words of otherwise silent and forgotten troops. Well, yes. And then, of course, there's also uh, Sita Ram's memoir. Ah, yes. Sita Ram's memoir from Sepoy to Subadar. What a puzzle that is. Uh, as you know, Rana, the memoir was transcribed and edited and published by a sympathetic British officer. It supposedly describes the service of a man who enlisted as a boy uh, about 1815 and curiously served in every significant campaign from then to 1857. Uh, it's a great read, but but some scholars, notably Kim Wagner, author of several very fine books on this period, uh, argue that it's so dubious that it should be discarded. But to me, it's so useful and, and unique that I can't bring myself not to use it. Tell me, what do you think, Rana? Well, I would agree with you. Uh, you know, despite the doubts that are cast upon its authenticity, I would still uh, use it, albeit with a, with a, ca a caveat. And can you think of any other sources to, to gain the voices of Indian troops that I might use? Well, as you mentioned, there, you know, there are a number of sources that are available when you go through uh, the consultations. And uh, some of them can be um, quite detailed and uh, surprisingly rich. For instance, when I was working on the, uh, the first volume of the History of the Indian Order of Merit, which, as you know, is one of the oldest is the oldest gallantry award of the of the Commonwealth. It predated the Victoria Cross by some 17 years. Mm. Uh, I came across uh, the deposition of uh, uh, a man called Sheikh Hidayat Ali. And Sheikh Hidayat Ali was, uh, in 1857, he was a third-generation soldier. And he, he had submitted a very, very detailed report on the... Uh, causes of the 1857 uprising. So, you know, it's literally worth its weight in gold. And you do find these kind of uh, sources on and off. Mm. You also intend to include sections on, on cantonments, campaigns, sources, and even medals. Is that right? 
And why is that? Yeah, yes, my present plan is to include sections at least describing cantonments, that is, the military stations where these people served, not least because researchers often simply don't know what they were. And as you know, their names have often changed uh, over, uh, over the years. Um, I remember when I was researching my PhD uh, in the early 1990s, I came across a company soldier who'd been court-martialed and transported to Western Australia. Now, he'd been convicted in the cantonment of Dinapur, which is in Bihar, uh, still a major military station, the headquarters of the Bihar Regiment. Um, and it still has many of its pre-1857 buildings. But the transcribers of the record, who were working in Perth, Western Australia, they rendered Dinapur as Singapore because they just didn't know of the existence of that cantonment, and they assumed it was a typo. Well, as you know, because you've helped me to explore at least one cantonment, the remains of the old British cantonment of Delhi, cantonments are still very visible reminders of pre-mutiny history of British India. True. Um, and, and why campaigns? Ah, well... I suppose the simple answer is I'm a military historian, but I think the justification is is that the late John Keegan said, uh, I think, that battles are to military history what financial transactions are to economic history. That's ultimately what the armies were for. And it was through a succession of battles that the company extended its dominion over the subcontinent, not least in this period, which saw, among other conflicts, major wars with the Sikhs and the Burmese, and Burmese kingdom. Um, and the troops' performance in battle sheds a great deal of light on the character of the armies. Uh, can you give us an example of what you're thinking of? Oh, yes, indeed. Um, it's supposedly well known that the Madras army allegedly declined in this period, and officers, Bengal officers, often de derided Madras as a sleepy pres presidency uh, where troops became inefficient and decadent and generally useless. And that supposedly explains why Madras regiments were gradually converted after 1857 into Punjab or at least northwest Indian recruited units. But if you look at what the 50-odd regiments of the Madras army did in the period 1824 to 57, you find that they were used again and again in a series of both external wars, in Burma and China especially, and to suppress rebe rebellions and insurgencies in southern India and even in Malaya which the Madras army garrisoned from about 1820. And when you look at how Madras units actually performed on service, you find that they did very well. So, for example, um, the British army, which invaded southern China in 1840 to enforce the opium trade, included half a dozen Madras regiments. And in May 1841, a British Indian force advanced on Canton by land and water. And in those operations, a company of the 37th Madras was surrounded by a larger Chinese force, but they held off their attackers at Bayonet Point for an hour until the British column relieved them. So that's not, that's not the performance of a decadent and effete and inefficient army. And my conclusion was to realise that I'd read far too many dismissive accounts by Bengal officers, who, although they were disdained by Queen's officers, were also unbearably condescending towards their counterparts in Bombay, and especially Madras. Of course, in 1857, it was the Bengal army which mutinied and which almost completely disappeared. Yes, I mean, of course, of, of the 74 regular Bengal infantry regiments, only eight were reconstituted after the uprising. Yes, and of course, the Sikh and Punjabi regiments, which had remained loyal, became the core of the new force, post-1857 force. Hence my decision to end the book with the outbreak of the mutiny. Uh, and what are some of the other problems uh, you've encountered in researching and writing uh, the book? 
Well, I think that by their nature, historians are used to living with a great deal of uncertainty, especially at the beginning of an inquiry. I find that I have degrees of uncertainty about all sorts of aspects of the project and the product. For example, one of the challenges to is to ensure that the contents are at least accurate. Um, but that uncertainty is resolved by research, especially by using primary sources um, and the abundant archives of the company's armies. Getting to London to do that is another matter, but we won't talk about that today. But there are other uncertainties which authors often can't resolve and, and may never. For example, uh, for example, the, the sources of, uh, of, of Indian troops. Um, and it's often difficult to work out what potential readers or users actually want, although that's eased by having some familiarity with the field and those interested in it. And again, my little advisory panel of, of you and, and Doug Pears and my friend and colleague Craig Wilcox from Sydney helps to, to work out what it, what it should and shouldn't include and what should go in and what shouldn't. Um, it seems, though, that the, the phrase navigating uncertainty, which is uh, the, the, uh, the, the motto of this series, that might be a useful shorthand for the process of scholarship and academic publishing – and that an attitude of uncertainty, or at least provisional certainty, is the perennial and unavoidable, unavoidable approach of an historian who seeks to establish what happened and why and when. What are the? Uh, I mean, are there any other problems that you've uh, encountered as well while researching the book? Oh, lots. But um, I mean, for example, the sources I know are in London at the moment inaccessible, but I'm sure that's just a temporary problem. Uh, and in any case, I've been collecting sources for 30 odd years, not knowing I'd need them for this project. Uh, I think a bigger problem for me is that because most of the old pre-1857 regiments were disbanded, very few of the Bengal regiments have published histories. Um, and as you know, Indian unit histories are often extraordinarily rich and informative. But I've discovered that I, at present, I know less than I should about individual regiments from any of the presidencies. And I realise uh, that I have a little test of that. When we go to our local cafe, they, they give you a table number. And I find if they give me, say, number 39, I can immediately think of the 39th foot of the Dorset Regiment for the British Army or uh, the, the 39th um, Battalion uh, in the Second World War for Australia, very famous battalion. But do I know much about the 39th Bengal or Madras or Bombay Native Infantry Regiments? And for now, I don't. It's mostly a blank. But one of the most enjoyable byproducts of this project is learning about the histories of regiments of an army, which, which I found to be of absorbing interest. And I very much share that fascination, Peter, and I look forward immensely to reading the book. And I'd like to thank you, actually, for taking on this uh, Herculean task. And all the best. Um, look forward to seeing it in print uh, at, a, at, a, at an early date. Thanks, Rana. Me too. Look, it, it's always a pleasure to discuss our common interest in the military history of India. And I'm very grateful to you for your questions and very much for your advice along the way. Thanks, Rana. Thank you, Peter. That was a conversation between squadron leader Rana China of the United Service Institution of India and Professor Peter Stanley of UNSW Canberra discussing Peter's current research for his forthcoming book, John Company's Armies, The Military Forces of British India, 1824-57. to 57.